Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Hi, Steve. It's great to be here today, and we have a fantastic, fantastic guest with us today, Allison Arden Basunder, who is an expert in all things estate planning, estate law, and she's going to be talking to us today about some really important things that uh, divorcing women need to know about wills, estate planning, and so forth. But let me give you a little background, too. Uh, she knows what she's been doing. She's been in practice for over a decade here in the rough town of New York City. I feel like if you can make it anywhere here, Allison, if you can make it in New York City, you can make it in anywhere. And she focuses her area on trust and estates, also elder law, estate litigation, commercial litigation, intellectual property. She has extensive experience counseling clients on all different types of matters from the most simple to the wildly complex. So I can only imagine how many stories you, you probably have there. She, in her free time, which is like, ha, 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 but uh, she's co-chair of the Privacy Task Force of the New York State Bar Association and member of the Trust and Estate Elder Law Section of the New York State Bar Association. The Suffolk County and Brooklyn Bar Associations, as well as the Bar Association's Animals and Law Committee. Allison is certified to act as a court-appointed evaluator, court examiner, and guardian in the New York State Carts. And she's an accomplished writer, frequent contributor to the New York Law Journal, the Suffolk Lawyer, and lecturer at Practicing Law Institute. In her free time, which I again giggle because I know how wildly busy she is both with her practice and her family, um, but which we all know she has so few, so little, she actually enjoys boxing. I love that. Boxing, playing with her kids, reading as well as writing. So it is great to have you here. Um, would love to have you talk to us um, and you know just share your wisdom today. Well, thank you, Stacey. It's great to be here, and thank you for having me on the show. Wonderful. Um, so where would you like to start? Well, you know, the first thing I would love to hear, and this is something that you may not have ever thought about, but tell me a little bit about your first money memory and what that looks like. Well, my first money memory, I don't know if it's my first, but it's certainly the most resonant, is from my grandmother. Um, my great-grandfather had owned a lot of property out east on Long Island, um, and she was the youngest of four children. Um, I think it's fair to say that he probably didn't have a good secession plan in place, and although I've done some research on it, I haven't found all of the answers. And unfortunately, her older sister, who was the executor of the estate, we assume really mismanaged the properties, and there was not much left to distribute. So the the legend, the family legend goes that my grandmother wound up with $1,000. Now, obviously, at the time of the Depression or a little bit after, $1,000 was much different than it was today. Um, but, you know, I remember her reinforcing that she would go around saying, you know, I could buy that dress in the window. I could do this. I could do that. But I'm not going to. And that just having the choice and just knowing that she had that power um, with the money but not spending it was sufficient for her. Um 
the other side of that is that as a child of the depression and what happened when her father died when she was very young and she had lost her mother when she was 10, she also became extremely frugal on the other end of the spectrum and unfortunately didn't, um, she really didn't allow herself to enjoy the money that she had, um, that she had earned through investing. I mean, she was a mm-hmm. very, uh, she was ahead of her time with investing. And so the other side of it is that my father, you know, the next generation was the the other lesson of that was, you know, you spend a little bit, but you save a little bit. And then if you end the year a dollar behind, you're really never going to catch up. It's harder to catch up as opposed to taking, if you have $2, you put one in the bank and you can Mm -hmm. spend the other. So I think that's the, uh, that's the family money lesson that I've come away with. And how has that shaped you? Sometimes when you grow up and you see, a loved one being really frugal, you launch to the exact opposite. Um, and then there are other times where you watch your family um, living like there's no tomorrow and, and you know, only accumulating debt and you launch to the other side. What about you? Has that, has that propelled you either way or have you been able to find a, a middle ground that's worked well for you? I'd like to think that I found a middle ground. I think for everyone, they all have, you know, quote unquote, the number at which they would retire. But I I think that's a little bit of a fallacy. And I think money means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. But I think I've always tried to follow the credo of saving as much as possible. Fortunately, before I had children and, um, you know, free time and free money kind of went out the window because (laughs) they they tend to consume both in disproportionate, um, you know, allocations. But I I like to think that I'm also, um, I'm not super frugal, but that I think it's made me balance, you know, knowing how to enjoy life, but also not to a level where, um, you're frittering away, you know, yeah. money on unnecessary, unnecessary things. So, so a question I've always wanted to ask you is, why did you become an estate planner, a, a, a state and trust attorney? And the only reason why is because I can't imagine many little girls running around saying, "I want to, I want to go into estate planning. I want to write wills, and I want to work with, um, you know, couples planning for their future right. and families who have unfortunately lost a loved one." Right. And talking about death and disability all the time. Yeah. Right? Not many six-year-olds. And, and you're such a cheerful, that. lovely, nice person, too, um, which I think is great because I, I imagine you need that even more so in your career. But how did you how did you find this? And also, you're so passionate about it, too. So there's a couple of things. So I do come from a family of lawyers. So I think I'm the sixth in a family of seven lawyers that, you know, my grandfather, um, the grandmother who I was talking about to you about her husband um, and his brother and his nephew, my father, my brother, and even my mother. So, you know, Thanksgiving dinners were always interesting. Dinner, regular dinners were always interesting because the topic of conversation was the law. And my father was a litigator and he gave me deposition transcripts to read when I was six. So, you know, I wasn't exactly running around saying I want to be an estate planning attorney, but um, I certainly had been to surrogate's court. I'd been mm-hmm. to Supreme Court. I had watched him do what he does, um, you know, in a smaller town in New York. And so I, I think, in my own opinion, children tend to go down the path or similar path as their parents because it's what they're comfortable with. That being said, I went to law school and swore I was never going to practice law. Um, and practice law I did. I went to a larger firm. I was a commercial litigation partner there, and I was doing fashion law totally, completely different. Um, but I also knew that I didn't necessarily want to be in a big law firm. I wanted to do something more um, personal than corporate law. I think there were certain personal experiences that led me into this, um, one of which was watching my grandparents get older, and I had the good fortune of having, you know, 
three or four of my grandparents until a, a late age. Um, but also seeing how a good plan can minimize strife among family and yes. to maintain the relationship mm-hmm. that where older generation has put in place a plan where they have communicated well with their children rather than just be passive and put it off um, that it really helps to keep a family together and ultimately that's the legacy you want to leave right it's not the money it's not the assets it's what is the relationship among your children and your family members Um, and I hadn't thought about it until I was on my way here and you asked me about my money story but you know in a way looking at my grandmother's history and her own inheritance or you know the deprivation thereof um, and the lack of a session plan that I've really Really kind of incorporated that into my philosophy of working with clients and helping them to really put a plan in place that's not just the documents, but making yeah. sure that they understand it in a way that they can then talk to their family members. So, And I think you bring up a great point. We, we've talked a lot about an estate plan, but I think a lot of people don't actually really know or understand uh what is an estate plan? And, you know, if I'm if I'm not a super wealthy person, why would I need one? Right. But but that's not necessarily the case. So can you explain, Correct. you know, what is an estate plan? Kind of take out all the mystery and the jargon that we hear that it usually scares the bejeebers out of people from ever contacting someone with you like you. And, and also explain, you know, why is it important? Why is it important? Sure. Well, I think the first place to start is, and particularly since we're talking about it in in the context of marriage and divorce, is that when people get married, they don't realize that they're entering into a contract that is set by about 1,100 laws at the federal and state level. And they don't necessarily read up on those laws or know what it entails. Um, Certainly in the context of same-sex marriage, right, when that whole debate was going on before it became legal, that it's everything from estate tax exemptions and deductions to fishing licenses and whether they're transferable. So there's that piece of it. And certainly when you get married, um, well, I should say, when you don't do a will, meaning a last will and testament, and what I mean by that is, how am I going to leave my assets when I die? And if you have small children who are under the age of 18, who's going to take them if I'm gone and my husband's gone, right? And so there's a basic um, philosophy of the law, I guess you could say, in New York State and other states, which is that if you don't write a will, the state is going to write one for you. That's called intestacy. And the same thing with marriage, right? If you don't write a prenup, then the law is going to dictate what happens when that marriage dissolves. And I have I have a favorite saying, maybe it's a little bit um, cynical, but you know, all relationships end in death or divorce. So it's going to be one of them. Assume, right. Assume (laughs) one of them. So I'm on the death side, other people handle the divorce side, but you really need to deal with your assets. And so people don't know when they get married, for example, if they commingle their assets, I know more often than not, women tend to combine and commingle their assets with their husbands. They open joint accounts. They think that's the way that it's supposed to be. And and for some people, that works. But they also don't understand what that means if they have to unwind things. So I had a friend who worked for a company that ultimately became one of the first um, huge tech companies and had stock options that she had accrued as it went from one company to another to another. Um, she got married. Marriage lasted about five, six years. And she hadn't, without really any thought, she had commingled everything and there was no prenup. And so all of that wealth that she had accumulated from these stock options ultimately was subject to being marital property. Um, And so, you know, people don't necessarily think about that, certainly in terms of divorce. On the estate side, when you talk about an estate plan, to me, it's not about the money, although that's a frequent um, 
It's a frequent comment I hear from prospective clients who want to know what an estate plan is. And that's just a nickname for what is the documents, right? And so the, the, the starting entry point set of documents that I work with clients on is a last will and testament. And so that, like I said, deals with your assets when you die and who's going to take care of your children and who's going to manage money for them. And then also advanced directives, which are really documents that are operative during your lifetime. So a healthcare proxy to make medical decisions, a power of attorney to make financial decisions. And also we do, not my favorite or most uplifting document to talk about, but an appointment of agent for the disposition of remains. And I'll tell you why that's important in a divorce scenario um, in a little bit. And you'll remind me if I forget. And and a question I have, do do women post-divorce, and I know the answer to this, but I have to ask it because... Some people will actually say no to this. Do women have to update their estate plan after they get divorced? Yeah, I think the answer to that is that women need to update their estate planning documents. And by that, I mean all of the documents that I just mentioned, not just the will, but the advanced directives, both before, during, and after the divorce. And I know that a lot of people don't like paying lawyers and they're very shell-shocked by the cost of the divorce, particularly if it's a contested divorce. But I can't emphasize enough how important it is. It's a, it's a little bit penny-wise, pound-foolish because it does give you peace of mind and maybe I think a lot of people have the luxury of not um, worrying about the things that I have to worry about for them in this mm-hmm. regard. But, um, you know, the, the most critical time, I think, for clients is that time where they have decided to divorce or they've even filed a divorce proceeding. That doesn't terminate anything, right? So if you die in testacy, your spouse is still entitled to 100% of your estate. And particularly if your assets are in joint accounts or they're still on beneficiary designations and that's a different wow. issue. So I, I'm just going to come back to that, Allison, because mm-hmm. that's, that's really scary. So you file the divorce and papers. is very scary. <laughs> you, don't, you haven't updated your will. You don't have a will out there. Everything then goes to your husband no matter... If you don't have children. If you don't have children, no matter how awful he has been or whatever the reason for the divorce doesn't matter unless you have a judicial separation that's going to um address that issue of that interim limbo period yeah yeah that spouse is getting everything now obviously there are some nuances to that you can claim abandonment but those are hard things to prove it's going to cost a lot of legal fees to assert it um and so on so the other side to that is that if you do have children you're getting divorced or you filed for divorce um, but again, no judicial separation agreement has been signed or entered. Yeah. Then the spouse gets the first 50000 and half. The kids get the other half. But maybe not the worst part of it, but an equally bad part of that is that if the children are under the age of 18, that half, that 50% has that to get. The kids would get. That the kids would get has to be held jointly with the clerk of the court in the city of New York, in the county of Kings. And that means that somebody has to petition the court every time you want to get the money out. And now there's oh a certain gosh. benefit to that in certain types of circumstances where it's a wrongful death proceeding or there's you know a lot of money. You want to make sure that the natural parent who's left isn't going to you know burn through $3 million. But it's a shock to some people when they realize they have to ask for that money. And the court has this un- unspecified sum of money that they want to retain for, you know, quote unquote, college. What does that mean? Right. I think it means in relation to the overall sum. But um, I'll give you a hypothetical that's loosely based on, on a matter that I had to that I encountered where, um, you know, a lot of people aren't getting married these days and they're having kids and they're still accumulating assets and they don't get around to doing a will. Um, one would be spouse died unexpectedly. All of the assets were in his name. They were saving, you know, for a house and before, but it wasn't in a joint account. 
it was in a joint account, it would have passed by operation of law. You don't have to deal with any of this. Um, and so the surviving parent was shocked to learn that all of the money went to the kids because they weren't married. So that left her in, you know, in quite a, a situation where if you're relying on that money and you've been treating it like yours, but you're not titled on it. So I, I think people don't give due consideration to um, the titling of accounts, what that really means. And it's a, that could be a whole other podcast. But, um, but certainly in the context of, well, what if somebody does die? What if there is a guardianship? Are you legally married? And I've learned to always ask you know, and not take it for granted that yeah. just because they're holding themselves out like that. So, so what you're saying, Allison, is that a couple who is married, she decides to to get a divorce, so he decides, and if one of them dies during those proceedings before things are finalized, then the remaining spouse, the living spouse, will get fifty thousand plus fifty percent of the assets, and then the kids will get fifty percent. And if it wasn't set up correctly, well, th- that's and just to be clear, that's if there's no will. If there's if there's no will, exactly. And if it's not no will, not set up correctly, like like we know it should be, then they're going to be petitioning the state, um, correct, for everything from you know buying clothes to mm-hmm. potentially bigger things like to college after school programs. To after school, I can't imagine. And that is that is the. St- that is the state of the law, whether you're getting divorced or not. So that's the intestacy piece of it that people yeah. don't realize, as opposed to writing down in a will, I have a trustee, the trustee is going to have discretion. I mean, and that things are fraught with their own problems, right? But um, having the plan and having it set out does that. Yeah. The other side to that is that, so now somebody's initiated divorce or they're going to initiate divorce. And let's say that they did have a will. They did exactly. their estate plan together. So what if they have I, a will and they haven't updated it, though? So let's assume that they have mirror image wills. I leave everything to you. You leave yep. everything to me. We both die together. It goes to the kids. Um, everything's great, right? But the initiation of the divorce proceeding does not revoke that designation. Now, there is a provision in the law that once you do have a judicial decree of divorce, that those those bequests or those appointments, those fiduciary appointments are automatically revoked. But a lot of people just assume, well, I filed for divorce or, you know, I've notified them of separation. So that just revokes it. It really doesn't. And it's not like you could just go and rip up your will because then you're in the intestacy position that, you know, we talked about in the first place. Not only that, but there's something called a right of election, which means that a spouse has a right to elect against your state. You can't in New York, you can't cut your spouse out entirely. You have to leave them a minimum of one third. Now, the surviving spouse affirmatively has to do something about that, right? They have to go to the surrogate's court and say, no, 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 she cut me out and I want a third and I get my third. Um, but that right could be waived, right? So it's possible they just don't assert it within the time limitations and, and all that. Um, but the they still have that right even if you filed for divorce. So until they waive it, and that's something that should be included in every judicial separation agreement or um, mm-hmm. at, at some point that's the first thing you want to get, Um but that also, you know, that also stands. And I've seen litigation like that, right, where there's a divorce pending, big estate, one dies, and they've got a they got a right of election, notwithstanding the divorce going on, and that gets messy. I had a case uh, where the divorce decree was signed by the husband, not the wife. The wife passes away a couple days before she was set to go into her lawyer's office to sign it. Um, they had not updated their wills. They had two children college age. And that was a perfect situation where because it wasn't finalized, because nothing was updated, he could go in and petition for his 
one-third right of election. Thank goodness he was a good guy and waived that so that all the money could go to his two kids. But you can't always always count on that. No, particularly if the kids have aged out, right? So if yeah. you're done with college, you know, I think, yeah, you do have a lot of people who say, okay, my issue is with the spouse and not with my kids, and it's going to go to my kids anyway. So, um, but you have plenty that aren't like that or that the kids are older and they've had a, a falling out. So you definitely don't want to leave it up to chance. Um, yeah. And it's definitely something that needs to be thought through. I will, um, I'll just add to that another, um, other alarming situations, right? So people also they focus on the will. Um, watch it. Let me point this out too. So the revocation of the bequest to the spouse or the fiduciary appointments to the spouse, that doesn't apply to their family members. So if you don't change your will, but you've named your father-in-law as the executor, right, or the successor executor, and you haven't changed that, you may have had a falling out with the father-in-law once you've gotten divorced. So that might not be something that you want to do. And the other important piece is that beneficiary designations on your um, 401ks, your life insurance, things like that, even though they are revoked by the divorce, you know, once that decree is entered, you you also don't want to leave that chance. But the piece about the advanced directives that people forget about is that... And the advanced directives, again, that's the power of attorney for someone making financial decisions and healthcare proxy for someone making medical decisions for you. And burial decisions. And burial decisions. Which actually became an issue in a Kennedy case a couple of years ago. So there's no revocation provision like there is with the will. And so Hmm. if you have a healthcare proxy that names your spouse, I'm betting most people getting divorced from their spouses, you know, not with notwithstanding the trend of conscious uncoupling and all of that. I think you still don't want your ex-spouse making medical decisions for you. No, thank you. Right. And there is a statute under the law that he, in the absence of a health care proxy, it's the Family Medical Decisions Act. And so your spouse would have priority to make the decisions. The thing that happened with the Mary Kennedy case, if you remember that, she was married to RFK Jr. And they were estranged. I don't believe that they were legally separated. I don't know if a divorce proceeding had been filed. He was the one who got to dictate where she got buried not the siblings. And there was litigation. It got resolved quickly. But he buried her, I think, in New Hampshire or Massachusetts. And then he moved her from one spot in the graveyard to another that's away from the Kennedys without notice to anybody. Um, so you It's know, like Jersey housewives. It was a little bit. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, irreparable harm. And it's really hard to get a body exhumed once they're buried. Um, but that, that um, you know, trivia legal trivia fact of the right of sepulcher i mean people don't think about these things but it is traumatic when that happens and so had she simply done an appointment of agent for the disposition of remains the siblings would have had the power to say no that she should be with our family you guys were you were done um and it's a simple document but you know wow i mean i I think it's great that you that you share that because that's not something that i've ever realized is that your divorce does not revoke whether or not he can make the medical decisions and the financial decisions for you if you have nominated him. And I mean, I love my husband. If we get divorced, though, I'm going to probably be pretty darn ticked at him. It comes down to do you resuscitate her? He's probably going to say no. Let her go. Let her go. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. We'll have to see. We've never been there. Thank goodness we're happily married. But I I can only imagine in that situation. um, Yeah, just like you said, that's the last person that you would want any other mistakes or kind of those horrifying things. And and I'm trying to scare all the listeners here, Allison. It's okay. We want to scare the listeners. And the reason why is that estate planning for most of everyday people, we would rather clean our toilet bowls with a toothbrush than 
go ahead and talk about There's a commercial like that, isn't there? I, I, I'm sure there is, <laughs> and they probably got right to the heart of like it, right. it, it was worse than going to the dentist office, unfortunately. But women need to know that this is serious stuff, and it not only impacts them, but it impacts the people who are most dear to them in their lives their children, their family members, because they're the ones that have to clean up this and go through hell if they haven't actually, if women haven't actually put these things in place the way they should, particularly through a divorce and after a divorce. Correct. And I think that's true of estate planning in general, right? Which is that I think a lot of people are paralyzed by indecision and they just want to leave it to other people. Um, but that paralysis of indecision and just bumping it you know, to the next the next level or the next people to clean that up is not going to enhance their memory of you or the legacy that yeah, you leave. No. And part of you know what haunts me is imagining these people rolling over in their graves of you know what what they wrought or what was left, and that they probably would change it if they had the opportunity to. Um, so I think that's that's important, and I I think. With for people with kids, certainly, maybe before, if they think that divorce is on the horizon, if they know that divorce is on the horizon, um, there's a couple of things. I'm going to say something that probably isn't too popular of a sentiment. I don't think people realize what they're getting themselves into when they say, okay, I want a divorce. And that's not to say that there aren't some people who really should leave. It's just not suited for them. It, they're in a dangerous situation. Absolutely 100% they should get divorced. But I'm talking about the other bandwidth where it's, you know, it's just too hard or it's, you know, he left the toilet seat up. You know, I don't know that they've weighed that annoyance against the emotional and financial cost of getting divorced. And that to a certain extent, if you have children, in my view, you're always going to be married to that person because they are the co-parent no matter how much you like them or not. And you will be dealing with them in in an even more difficult way, right? That being said, if the decision, if the reasoned decision has been made to, um, to go down that path, I think the first step women in particular should do is see a divorce attorney. Mm -hmm. I think they should do that, you know, without without telling their spouse even, um, and getting their questions answered. It's worth a consultation fee if they charge it, and at least you know what your rights and obligations are and what's at stake. And if you find somebody who's not explaining it to you in plain language, then you need to go to somebody else. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I don't understand a lawyer, so they must be smart. That's not that's not how it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. My job is to make sure that you understand your documents, that you understand what the consequences are, that we've weighed, you know, what your, objecti- your objectives are, and is it meeting your objectives? Um, and I think that should be the responsibility of every client to get that out of their lawyer. Um, so I think that's the first step. And I think the second step is that in approaching a divorce with your spouse, hopefully in a, you know, um, as non-combative way as it can be to get that right of election uh, almost you know the, the waiver of the right of election almost immediately or to address that in those discussions of okay what are we going to do in this interim period um, but to very quickly if you can get a separation agreement that addresses you know custody issues in the event that one of you dies um, yeah. pending divorce dealing with the waiver of the right of election dealing with the assets um, and I think for women going into it certainly considering getting a divorce coach at least assessing their assets right yeah. and seeing is it joint is it not joint what would happen in these situations do I need to restructure this before I start the process so and I think you bring bring such um, such wise advice to this of number one go out there and interview attorneys get your questions answered if you don't understand it's not you it's them 
right? Which is really important. But then also, you put a really smart spin on how do you go into the divorce process of trying to have a a waiver put in place and be able to understand and have decisions made about what happens to one of you or both of you during the divorce process, what happens to the kids. And it's interesting, I've heard many matrimonial attorneys also say, before you deal with the financials, before you deal with all that, talk about the kids. And it sounds like what this would be too is really focusing on the needs of the kids first before you get into all of the other you know, gobbledygook and and conflict that's going to come down the line potentially over the financials so you can get those documents also in place to help you with the the estate planning piece. Right. And I'm not a matrimonial attorney and I don't, I do prenups and postnups, but I don't handle divorce. Um, Although my, my own personal joke is that I always swore I was not going to do matrimonial divorce, um, matrimonials and divorces. And now I just deal with divorces among siblings and it's very similar. Um, And and I think in some ways, probably even more heartbreaking. I think in a lot of ways, it's even more contentious. Um, Um, because there's an end to the divorce. There's a decree with the siblings. It can go on for a very long time. Um, But I think think that helps frame the conversation, certainly to be more productive, one would hope, that if you're focusing on the kids, the rest of it, you know, puts it into perspective. But I think it's hard enough for married couples to agree on a guardian. That's always, more often than not, the hold up when people come to me, we couldn't agree on a guardian. And I always tell people, the guardian you choose for your two-year-old is not the guardian you're going to choose for your, your teenager. It's going to change. You're going to be sitting with them at Thanksgiving dinner and not like the way that they chew their turkey. You're going to get into a fight over something. You're going to see how somebody raises their own kids and say, that's not where I want my children. So you are going to update your documents. Um, so you need to, you know, kind of the saying of it's Mr. Right Now, not Mr. Right. It's the same yeah. thing with a guardian. So, and I think certainly for people who are separating or are getting divorced, it's not the kind of thing that you should say, well, it's too hard. We're just not going to address it. It really should be addressed because you could wind up with a situation where you have inconsistent wills of divorced parents of who's going to be the guardian. Um, people not realizing that their, uh, their ex-spouse is still the natural guardian of the child and they have priority. They're going to get them, um, you know, and dealing with that. And that's, that is the most important issue. So I cannot thank you enough. And my hope is that this has at least started a, a little flame for individuals to get off their butt to do this stuff. And, you know, you and I know how important it is. And just like you said, um, you know, don't be penny wise, pound foolish. This is something that you really need to think about and put in place. Um, so I just want to say a great big thank you for Allison. I know how crazy busy you are um, for being here and for sharing these do's and don'ts and and things to think about as we think about divorce, go through the divorce process and, and after. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you. I appreciate it. Another great show. Stacy. how about telling our listeners a little bit about what you offer clients at Francis Financial? Well, thank you, Steve. Yes, I'm happy to do so. If anyone is considering a divorce or going through the divorce process and wants what we call a second opinion, that's what we're here for. And we can map out where you are today, where you are going, uh, show you what settlement A versus B versus C looks like, so that when you're making decisions, you can make decisions from a a place of, of knowledge as you're deciding where you're going to be. Uh, in the future, because we know that financial decisions made during the divorce process don't just impact you 
now or next month, um, they will impact you for the rest of your financial life. And women, unfortunately, are twice as much, twice as likely as men to fall into poverty in those retirement years. And those women, the majority of them are divorced women. It's not a good statistic. It's a statistic that needs to change. And it doesn't have to be reality. If again, you have the right advice, you're able to really understand your finances, and have a clear decision, and knowing the impact of what you're saying either yes to, or what you're saying no to. Knowledge is power. It is. It is. Knowledge is power and it gives financial security. It gives financial peace of mind. And and women completely need this because it not only impacts them, mm-hmm. but it impacts their children. And we all know that the way you're raised, the way you're cocooned in dealing with money is how your parents dealt with money. And so it's an amazing, wonderful opportunity to be a great, great role model for your kids when it comes to money and and getting savvy about money. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a great website. Uh, How about contact information, website address, all of that? Sure. Uh, I love our website, too. Thank you. Um, it's francisfinancial.com. Uh, you can also email me. Uh, very easy to get my email, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. And always happy to call a uh, phone here. I love to chat on the phone, 212-374-9008. Thank and you. we also have uh, Allison's information here, too, uh, that she can share with us. Sure. So my website also has some FAQs and other blog posts um, and articles that I've written on various topics, but also divorce topics. So it's www.besunderlaw.com. And you can reach me through that website or at allison at besunderlaw.com. My Twitter handle, I believe, is at estate trust plan. And so you can find me there as well. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. It's Financially Ever After with Stacey Francis. More episodes coming soon. You can listen to us on DivorceHorseRadio.com or Stacey's website as well as iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and all over the web. I look forward to the next show, Stacey. Thank you. Have a great day, Steve.